The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast, the spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, Kate Andrews writes about the magic money tree. We found it, so what could possibly go wrong? I also find out about the future of Taiwan, now that Hong Kong has been brought ever closer to Beijing. And finally, you might not have noticed them much, but Hotel Carpet is the subject of a new book, which is the lead review for our art section this week. It's a weird and wonderful world. First up, we've been told for years that the magic money tree doesn't exist, but this week has Rishi Sunak found it? Kate Andrews writes the cover piece for this week's Spectator, and she joins me now, together with Miata Fambule, who is the chief executive at the New Economics Foundation. So Kate, can you give listeners an overview of the government's new spending pledges? So this is a prime minister who came into Downing Street having rejected the austerity years brought in by David Cameron. And so far, he's stuck to his word in the sense that he hasn't really found a problem that he didn't think the solution was to throw a bit more money at. This was true in the March budget when, yes, there were billions put towards tackling coronavirus at the time, but actually the majority of new spending was on non-COVID-related issues. It was on his domestic agenda, leveling up the Green Initiative. Now, things that a lot of listeners might like, but the truth of the matter is that he didn't really decide how he was going to pay for them. He decided he was going to rack up the deficit some more. Then COVID hits and we are just, you know, obviously spending vast amounts of money. The IFS reports this week that the deficit this year will now pass 300 billion pounds. That sounds like a lot of money. Can you put it in context? How much money is that? By the time you're done listening to this section of the podcast, we'll have borrowed likely another 5 million pounds, right? We're talking about really incredible sums of money. Now, economists left and right will argue that this is a very unique situation. A one-off spend is not particularly problematic. Yes, it's a lot of money, but if you don't have to do it every year, you can pay it back and pay it down slowly. The problem that I'm sensing, and I think what the cover piece really speaks to this week, is that we're no longer just talking about COVID spending. They're trying to wrap their plans for the country, their domestic agenda in with COVID spending now. And it's not obvious that the Bank of England, which has been financing this whole thing, is going to be willing to cover the government's day-to-day expenses. And let's get on to that in just a minute. Miata, despite all this, you say that the government is not going far enough. I think you need to kind of break it down. I think when we look at the deficit uh, and people get scared by the big numbers, it's important to remember that a proportion of that, yes, is as a consequence of more spending that the government is doing, but a proportion of that is because revenue has completely plummeted because tax receipts have completely plummeted. So the government is right to try and prioritise getting the economy kicking again, because you can't get your revenue up and therefore your capacity to pay down your deficit is constrained unless the economy is working properly. The key thing I think people have to always remember, because I think these big numbers that are banded around aren't helpful. You know, if you're a business, you will constantly borrow to invest in your business as long as your borrowing is sustainable. And that comes down to the cost of financing that borrowing. And the kind of weird irony that we have is, 
the cost of financing the deficit is the lowest it has ever been historically. So if ever there was a time to say that you are going to invest in order to get your economy where you need it to be, this is absolutely the time. And I don't think people should underestimate the scale of the crisis that we're facing. Now, when we had the financial crisis, we thought that was absolutely extraordinary and government took big measures then in order to try and get the economy working again. We're looking at a crisis which is five times as severe in magnitude than the financial crisis. Uh, The deepest recession, we're told, for 300 years, potentially. Record levels of unemployment we haven't seen for 25 years. We cannot be complacent about that. This is like a once in a lifetime, a once in multiple generation type of crisis. And if the government doesn't act decisively to get us out of this hole, the impact on it, The long-term scarring on it will not only be massively damaging to the economy, will not only cost us a huge amount in the long run, but will be fundamentally devastating for lives and living standards. And that, in the end, is what matters, because the strength of the economy is only as important as it makes people's lives better. And that has to be the thing that we hold on to. But Kate, what I found particularly interesting about your piece was how magical this tree really was. Interest rates have been so low. What's going on there? Interest rates are at rock bottom. And that's what the Chancellor and the Treasury would argue, that it's not so much the total of the debt, but how much it costs to service that debt that matters. And that is a more generous measure for them. But there's more going on here. We've created essentially an artificial market in which the bank is printing hundreds of billions of pounds to fund the government spending. And then it mops up the debt that it leaves behind. Look at who's buying government debt. It is not the private sector investors who are hugely confident about it. It is the bank that is buying up the vast majority of debt in directly. So people purchase it knowing that they have a guaranteed buyer. How long is that sustainable? And we might be okay this time. I really hope Miata is right that this is a once in a lifetime event, specifically from a public health perspective. But this is the second crash we've had in just over a decade. There's no reason to really believe that we won't have one in 5, 10 or 15 years time for potentially COVID reasons, but for other reasons. And so Even if we get through it this time, we are in a terrible state when it comes to our finances. This was true before the COVID crisis. The OBR has been warning for years now that this is just not sustainable, that we are not going to be able to make good on our healthcare promises and our pension promises and the rest down the line. So we are heading into more debt, we are drudging into a higher deficit from a very fiscally vulnerable position. And if I were the prime minister, that's what would be keeping me up at night. Is the bank going to continue to directly finance the treasury? Is there something that's going to spook the markets here or elsewhere in the world that could have an impact on interest rates? Even if they were to go up ever so slightly, that could put the government in a really difficult situation to be able to continue to spend like it's doing. So if I were him, I'd be crossing my fingers every night before I went to sleep, hoping that tomorrow we don't find the straw that breaks the camel's back. Mieta, how long is this sustainable for? I think there are two questions. I think one issue is, if you like, the state of the public finances before COVID, and then the other is the sort of debt that we're accumulating during COVID. What I'd say about the state of the public finances before COVID is, I agree, we were promised that austerity would get us to balance books, and it never did. And my argument is part of the reason it never did was because the entire policy was flawed in the first place. If you don't invest in the economy, 
what will happen is that costs will accumulate elsewhere in the system, one, and two, your economy just won't do as well. Uh, so we were already skating at the bottom of growth before COVID hit. Our economy, the fundamentals were already weak before COVID hit. Productivity was already a problem before COVID hit. And so with all the will in the world, you know, we weren't generating the levels of revenue that we should have been in order to sustain the things that we wanted to spend on. And I think one of the things that has to come out of this is understanding at the points in which we invest to get the economy where we want to. But also, I think there is probably having a very honest conversation with the public about the social settlement. So my view is, actually, it makes sense for us to club together and to pool to provide things like collective health, social care, education, childcare, I would add in that. So there are things that it makes sense for us to do as a collective and say we will fund through taxation. And we just need to do that in the most progressive way. And we need to have a conversation about that because the debt that we're accumulating aside, I do hope the thing that comes out of this is a much bigger, better social settlement that looks to ensure that people have the basics they need for a good quality of life, that people have opportunities and prospects to improve their lot and their lives. And we need to think about the best way in which we can spend fund that. On the question of the debt that we're accumulating at this moment in time, I don't think we had a choice. I generally don't think the government has a choice but to act in the way that it's doing. Now, the thing that I would say, so people are worried that, you know, in a few years time, interest rates could skyrocket or the Bank of England will decide that it doesn't want to essentially underwrite our debts and borrow, uh, buy our bonds. Those two things, I think, are less of a problem, partly because the stock of debt that we're accumulating at this moment is locked into, so two thirds of it are locked into today's interest rates, which are at rock bottom. Uh, so it's not like even if interest rates were to increase in 10 years time, that would have an impact on stock. The other third of it is then determined by inflation. And so the big question is, well, what will inflation look like? We are well below capacity in the economy. So it looks very unlikely that we will get anywhere near the 2% targets uh, that gets us into the danger zone. So the macroeconomic fundamentals are such that on the debt that we're accumulating, I know it feels and sounds scary, but this is the best possible time to do that. And a final question for both of you, which is the billion pound question at the end of all of this, is how are we going to pay for it? Kate, you first. I've had a few MPs get in touch since the piece came out who think that if the government is at all serious about their pledge to, in the medium term, figure out how to pay for this, tax rises have to be on the agenda. Now, Boris Johnson very recently ruled them out yet again, or at least said he'd be sticking to his manifesto promise, which was that certain taxes wouldn't rise. But something's got to give. I very much hope that the government goes for a growth agenda, tries to grow the size of the pie, brings in more tax revenue that way. But I'm not terribly hopeful yet. I know some of the bigger decisions are coming in the autumn budget, but the mini budget that we saw this week was very focused on state intervention. And yes, cut stamp duty, that's a fantastic reform that's going to help liberalize the housing market and really should have solid knock-on effects for growth. But overall, I just didn't see the agenda that's going to kickstart your economy. I really didn't. And it's amazing that we're in a position where a conservative government is so keen to use state intervention as opposed to the market. But what I will say, and I think it goes back to this original point about the money tree and the tensions between the Bank of England and the government, they want to pivot their manifesto and their agenda that they had before the COVID crisis to being part, a huge part, of the COVID recovery. And they want to try 
try to justify that as COVID spending. And we just don't know yet if the governor of the Bank of England, who Katie Balls revealed just as we're recording this, is now rescheduled to speak to Tory backbenchers next week. Totally unprecedented move. We don't know if he's going to play ball. We don't know why he wants to speak to these backbenchers. We don't know what his agenda is, but something's up. Something isn't quite right. And those tensions are going to grow, I suspect, as the government tries to spend more and more money. Mieta, how are we going to pay for all this? And do you worry as well that there might be a generational impact that it's going to be unfair for younger people? I think the lesson for history is twofold. I think the first thing is part of the way that we claw ourselves out of this is by getting the economy working again, or to use Boris Johnson's phrase, turbocharging the economy. Because the lesson from the financial crisis is that I think there were two different pathways that countries took. Some countries opted for a fiscal stimulus, essentially backed by the state, uh, supported then by quantitative easing and monetary policy, but backed by the state. And those that did that found that they were able to grow their economy at a much higher rate and much faster. Those that opted for austerity finally got there, finally got there, and I think we're an example of that, but we never really got to the other side of it. So part of the solution to this is that we get the economy working again so that we increase revenue, and if we can increase revenue and tax receipts, that's part of the way in which we pay down the deficit. It's also worth saying that the debt-to-GDP ratio feels as big as it does because GDP has completely plummeted. So the more that GDP increases, the more sustainable and manageable that debt will feel. The other part of it is we will have to pay it down gradually, but okay, the cost of financing that I think is sustainable. And then we'll have to have a conversation about the tax base. And in part, that's just about getting the tax base to where it needs to be. Part of that is ensuring that bits of our economy that aren't active at the moment are active. And that's why the government's investing certain things to make that happen. But then the final part of that is thinking about things that we don't tax particularly well um, and how we make our taxation system more progressive. So things that we don't tax really well, we know we don't tax wealth really well. So, you know, if you are earning, generating an income via employment, your tax and your basic income payer, you tax about 40%. If you generate your income through dividends, you're taxed at 20%. There's a huge disparity in that that isn't really justified. So I think thinking about actually how we get our tax system working in the best possible way, in a way that, you know, is progressive, ensures that those that can pay more pay more. I think that is part of the solution. But it's got to be all three. We've got to get the economy working because actually increasing economic activity and increasing tax receipts is the biggest way in which we can pay this thing down. And then we've got to think think about the balance of taxation in order to get where we want to. The one thing I hope we don't do, and the one thing it feels like the government has learned, is that austerity is short-term and it is self-defeating. Because, you know, we decided that we were going to cut a whole lot of stuff, including social care and health. We have a moment of shock like this, and we are playing catch-up, and we're having to chuck huge amounts of money just to stand still. And that makes absolutely no sense in the long term. Now, the generational impacts of this, that will always be the case, you know. But for me, if we do not invest now, if we have mass unemployment that's going to hit the next generation hardest, the scary impacts of that are far, far worse than a debt burden that if we play it right and we manage it, we can deal with. I just want to pick up on this 
austerity point. I don't agree that the lesson of the COVID crisis is that austerity was the wrong policy back after the financial crisis. You're talking about two very different types of spending. In the COVID crisis, we are looking at a £300 billion deficit or higher this year, with mostly one-off spending on public health to tackle a virus, to hibernate the economy, really crazy measures that we could never have imagined a week before the COVID crisis hit, let alone years back. Back during the financial crash, we had a structural deficit, which meant that day-to-day spending was out of control. And if we didn't do anything about it year on year, we were going to be racking up hundreds of billions of pounds of deficit that we just could not pay back. It was going to be much more harmful to the economy than a one-off spend. And markets, I think, would have started to really lose faith in the ability of the UK economy to get its finances under control. So I think we have to separate those two things. It's not obvious that austerity is the best policy now. I think a growth agenda makes a lot of sense. But hard decisions did have to be made in 2008. You know, I think Miyatsu and I would actually probably agree that the impact of austerity disproportionately fell on those who were more vulnerable, the young, those on welfare. And we can discuss the mistakes that were made in this specific policy. But I think getting that day-to-day spending under control is absolutely key. And the last thing I'd say is that it's all good and well to say we need to invest in the UK. But who's investing? When the government uses taxpayer money to invest, rarely are the returns fabulous. The fact that they are moving forward with HS2, which is going to be out of date by the time that it comes online, parts of it in decades from now, this is not helping with the COVID crisis. This is not a good investment. It is more often than not the private sector that really knows where the returns are going to be. So very pro-investment, very pro-kickstarting the economy. I just find it amazing that conservatives and those on the left, whether they support Labour or other political parties, have all seemed to pivot to this idea that the government's going to have all the solutions. It's obviously not. If you want the market economy to grow, involve the market. Mieta, just briefly, I mean, did you think that you'd be coming onto the Spectator podcast to be defending the government's policies against Kate Andrews? (laughs) It's a new norm for me. <laughs> Do you know what? The thing that I find uh, quite interesting, and, I'll, and I'll, pick, I'll pick up very briefly on the austerity point, the thing that I think is really interesting is look, I, I've always argued that, you know, some of this stuff isn't left or right. And I think actually at this moment in time, the debate is blurring left or right because I think there is a new common sense and there is a new consensus that we are in something absolutely extraordinary and we need to take unprecedented action to resolve that. And I also think that there's a really strong strong sense that actually one of the things that has happened in the pandemic is it has exposed many problems that we had anyway that were being swept underneath the carpet. And whether that is, you know, the fact that our social care system was on its knees, whether that's the fact that we have endemic levels of inequality that have been exposed by the pandemic, or the fact that, you know, there are people who are doing vital work for us in our economy that are paid low wages um, and are deeply insecure. There are a whole set of things that I think the pandemic has sort of created a bit of a reckoning. And actually across the political divide, there's a sense that there has to be a pivot point. Something has to change. The, the phrase that we've been using, and we were delighted that the Prime Minister's Union said that we've got to build back better from this. You know, it's not enough to say we just recover back to something, to a norm that quite frankly wasn't working for so many people. We've got to recover back to something that is better and that works for far more people than we did before. And for me, that's a really welcome thing. And as long as that is the ambition of the government, as long as it's 
does things to back up that ambition. So my one criticism is the rhetoric is definitely there. The sentiment is there. We now need to see decisive action to back that. Then I'm going to be, you know, commending them and saying positive things as long as that's the case. Because I don't think we can underestimate and we shouldn't underestimate either the moment or the opportunity that potentially this awful dark pandemic creates for something for us to do something better and the final point i would sort of say on austerity and you know i don't disagree with you kate that you know we had to get our public finances in order but the point is that there were always options right you had the option that the us took of essentially looking to stimulate the economy and increase their tax base to do that you had the option of increasing taxes but we chose remember to decrease corporation tax and decrease taxes for we those did get that get more revenue and corporation tax went down not after the financial crisis, it increased. But tax, my point is that tax cuts don't always mean that revenue goes down. You can find the sweet spot. And yes, you, there, are, there, there are lots you of- You absolutely can. But the bigger point is there are options. There are always options other than just cutting. And you can do a combination of the three. And we just have to get that balance right. And the just cutting bit, which, you know, to be for the, fair to the government, it tried to do some other things as well. But there was an onus on austerity. And I think an, a wrong onus on austerity. And why I say it has now created a problem is because the capacity of the social care system to deal with this pandemic was already constrained because we were funding it at record lows. We had been doing that for a decade, but actually we'd been doing that for longer than a decade. The capacity of the health system to absorb this crisis was impaired by the fact that we had under-invested in it for a really long time. So there are long-term consequences of the short-term decisions to cut. And that's the thing that we have to hold in our heads as we think about how we respond to the public finance challenge that will come out of this pandemic. Mietta and Kate, thanks very much. The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectators podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday. And now, despite its promises, Hong Kong has been brought into closer orbit to Beijing as of last week. So what about Taiwan, the neighbouring country to China, which it still doesn't recognise as a separate country? Dr. Alessio Patellano assesses the possibility of war in this week's Spectator. He joins me now together with Shelley Rigger, a Taiwan expert at Davidson University and the author of Why Taiwan Matters. So Shelley, to start with, can you give us a brief history lesson of the relationship between Taiwan and China? Sure. Taiwan was sort of lightly governed by the Qing empire until the late 19th century, at which point it became a part of the empire of Japan. Then at the end of World War II, in the midst of the Chinese civil war between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese nationalists, it was handed over to the then government of China, which was the Republic of China, ruled by Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. At the end of the civil war, instead of kind of completing the consolidation of its victory by seizing Taiwan, the Chinese Communist Party and the Red Army restricted their jurisdiction to the mainland. They were unable to make it all the way to Taiwan. So Taiwan has, since the end of World War II, been governed separately from the mainland under the old Chinese state, the Republic of China. And now increasingly people say, why do we have to be governed under this kind of 
remnant of a Chinese government? Couldn't we set up our own government and just call ourselves Taiwan? So that's the story in a nutshell. And Alessio, as Shelley draws out there, China does say that it has territorial claim on Taiwan. And that's the reason that you think that the reunification of Taiwan is part of China's wish list for the centenary that's coming up in 2049. I think yes, although I would probably put it slightly different. There are two components to this story. First of all, ever since 1992, the Chinese Communist Party maintains the idea of there is one China, the so-called one China policy. This, in a way, has changed since President Tsai came into power in 2016 because she has never really accepted that such a consensus exists over the fact that there is one single China. And with, at the end of the day, it boils down, if you want, to the question of when a reunification, right, Taiwan coming back home, as it were, will happen rather than if at all. So that's one element of the story. And if it, this component is the one that fits into this longer narrative that really belongs to the CCP and really goes back to 1949, and it is about the sense of bringing China back together, uh, this temporarily unavailable province will come home at some point. And of course, that's how 2049 as a centenary becomes a very important date symbolically. But I think there is also a second element in this regard that really pertains to how under Xi Jinping, this question of sovereignty has been linked to the rejuvenation of the Chinese people and the sort of the China dream, right? This emphasis that a certain degree of accomplishment by 2049 will be um, marshaled, will be projected because a sovereignty aspect that has completely been fulfilled. So within this context, perhaps the second element is how important under Xi Jinping this question of sovereign uh, space, sovereign territory, and within this context in particular, the return of Taiwan, reunification with Taiwan, really has been emphasised and linked together to the success of what's been accomplished by 2049, making it even more imperative, if you want, for the party somehow to deliver on it. And Shelley, as you draw out, Taiwan feels like it's getting further away from China in terms of its identity and whether or not it thinks it should be part of any China at all. Do you think that the worries and fears of uh, military invasion, as Alessio draws out in his piece, are prevalent in Taiwan? Well, I think one point to be made is just that the PRC's position is exactly as Alessio describes it. And it, it's based on this idea that sovereignty is inherited forever. So whatever the predecessor of your regime claimed as its territory, that's your territory forever. That's the PRC government's position. And I think it's a sort of philosophy of stateness that is widely embraced in mainland China. It's a very different idea that prevails in Taiwan. In Taiwan, people are much more convinced by a theory of stateness that says it's the consent of the governed, right? You know, mm -hmm. we are a democracy, we govern ourselves, so we should be able to decide our own future and not be subject to the claims of a state based on something that 
they say happened in antiquity. So there's this kind of philosophical foundation for the gap in the two sides and how they imagine their future. But I think as far as the military element goes, it's hard for Taiwanese to take the military element too deeply to heart because this has been part of their daily experience for 70 years, right? They have been under constant threat, both rhetorical and military. There have been moments of hot war between the two sides back in the 1950s. So I think for Taiwanese, the knowledge that the PRC is holding this sword is not new or recent and is something that they have learned to live around or coexist with because they have no other choice. Do you think that recent developments in Hong Kong have changed that calculation? I think recent developments in Hong Kong, the primary effect on Taiwanese is to confirm their suspicion that the PRC is not a political system that can make room for an autonomous, free or democratic subunit within it. I mean, that was the promise of the one country, two systems. That was what Hong Kong was supposed to do. It was supposed to prove that the Chinese Communist Party leadership could tolerate a subunit within the PRC with a high degree of autonomy. And the recent developments have mainly, I think, shown that that's unrealistic. And Alessio, finally, you write in your piece about the few allies that Taiwan still has because of Beijing's attempts at, you know, getting everyone on side, whether it's through aid or through trade. But Taiwan does have one key ally, and that's the US. How does the US feature in this calculation? Surely China would be loath to do anything militarily in ta- to Taiwan for fear of American backlash. I think that is certainly what the recent events in, across the Straits would suggest, in the sense that ever since the beginning of this year, we've had a regular, if you want, engagement on behalf of the US by deploying with military activities around Taiwan to emphasize the fact that there is this support, that the United States remain a committed partner to Taiwan. Of course, it's always very difficult because there is no sort of clarification as to what exactly that would entail in times of a major crisis. But uh, just around the time that President Tsai won the election in January, there was a a navigation of of an American destroyer through the Straits. Then again, when she gave her inaugural speech, and there were again other military activities that were meant to match and counter, if you want, what the Chinese military was conducting around the island. So there has been a consistent messaging, if you want, over the far past few months to, in one way, reassure Taiwan and the Taiwanese of American support to the island, but at the same time, also signaling to Beijing that uh, military activities, uh, you know, past a certain signaling dimension will not be tolerated. At least that was the message. But what I think is also very important is not just the military, if you want, signaling that the United States has been conducting. I think what is very important and there becomes an interesting lesson, 
if you want, if we can talk about this. I think it is the broader sort of political um, support towards Taiwan and a point that Shelley was making, very, very important. The fact that in Taiwan, the Taiwanese feel like they, they are in control of their destiny, they should be in control of their destiny, they have a political system that allows them to do so, whatever the choice uh, may be. And in the United States, since 2018, you have a number of acts that have been enacted by Congress, the Taipei Act being the, the latest one in March 2020, that were designed to continue to keep Taiwan on the international map. And I think that is perhaps one of the most important messages. Uh, this isn't just about military signaling. This is also about keeping Taiwan on that international map that will make ever so more complicated to conceive military action, especially in light of what Shelley very correctly pointed out, that is what happened in Hong Kong, which is providing sort of good ground for those who are suspicious of the fact that in the PSC, there is a belief that there is one country, two system model that might actually work. Shelley and Alessio, thanks very much. And now for a shameless self-plug. If you'd like to hear more on China, and from me especially on China, then I've just launched The Spectator's new China podcast. It's called Chinese Whispers, and it's a fortnightly podcast where I'll be talking to a selection of long-time China watchers about the country's politics, society, culture, and much, much more. You can listen to the first episode, which is out now on Hong Kong, when you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Chinese Whispers, all one word. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And finally, Hotel Carpets is the subject of a new book by Bill Young, a corporate pilot who has flown all around the world and stayed in all sorts of hotels. They're weird and wonderful things, and our obsession with them is clear from Bill's Instagram account, which has 400,000 followers to look at his selection of hotel carpets. He joins me down the line now, together with Sophie Hagney, who reviews his book for this week's art section. So Bill, I think the specialness of your book is brought out by the first sentences of Sophie's review of it. Consider the carpet. In all likelihood, you usually don't. (laughs) So how did you first start noticing them? I travel for a living. I'm a corporate pilot. And I spent a lot of time in hotels, or I did up until February this year when things have slowed down. And while staying in the hotel, usually I'll find myself in the lobby waiting for my uh, fellow crewmates to go uh, get dinner or go out and see the town. And I noticed that the carpets were pretty crazy in a lot of the hotels I stayed at. So I took a picture of them with my phone and I sent it to my wife and I'm like, hey, look at this. Look at this crazy carpet. She said I should do an Instagram account about the carpets, which... I did, and then uh, after about two years, I think I had 80 followers. And then my daughter came home from college, and she said, I think I'm going to see if I can make your hotel carpet Instagram go viral. And she sent out a tweet, and then it exploded to over 500,000 within a week or so. That's how the whole hotel carpet thing came to be. Now, I realize the irony in us talking about such a visual topic on the podcast, because, I mean, Bill, you say it's crazy, and in a magazine, there are some brilliant pictures and online and on Instagram, of course. But Sophie, could you just describe for us, um, for those of us who don't usually notice hotel carpets, what sort of stuff and patterns are we talking about? I would just say bright and colorful, big designs, a lot of different patterns. That was probably the first thing I noticed in looking at Bill's book was just the, the sort of sheer volume of color that was in all of these carpets. Yeah, it's, I think, really refreshing 
in a world where a we're mostly looking at our walls right now but also where minimalist design has kind of taken over and we're just used to looking at these sort of sleek bland spaces and they're all quite retro as well the ones that really stick out in my mind are are the ones that are most unlike the carpet i see in my house you know they're the ones that aren't beige (laughs) or a repeating pattern but ones that are specifically designed for the space of the of, of the lobby which are basically works of art. It could be a, a design of a, of a pyramid or just crazy kind of 80s designs or something a little bit more just not in your face but more subtle. Sophie, in your review, they were what you call ugly beautiful. Now, <laughs> coffee table books are normally beautiful, right? Just, just straightforward beautiful. So why is Bill's book so compelling that we're talking about it on a podcast? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really refreshing, both in, in in the actual design, but also in a departure from design books where you're used to seeing really kind of choreographed and beautiful spaces, I think, to look at hotel carpets, which are beautiful in their own way, but also kind of odd, sometimes have these sort of weird retro, maybe even you could think of them as tacky designs, I think is strangely really... Um, yeah, it is almost beautiful. It it creates an experience that's akin to beauty because we're so used to looking at all this other stuff. And Bill, you're such a hotel carpet connoisseur that you've even been invited into the design process of Marriott's chain of um, <laughs> designing hotel carpets. And what makes for a good hotel carpet and how do they come about? Are there artists that design especially for hotels? I'm not the most uh, artistic person. I do enjoy photography, and uh, that's my outlet to creativeness, I guess. I was really impressed to see how it all came together when Marriott invited us over uh, out to Washington, D.C. to tour their facility and to see see how carpet was being made or how sausage is being made, one might say. I was kind of shocked that we showed up, and uh, they had a designer from Marriott, and they had a designer from Royal Thai Carpets, who is uh, one of their partners and does a lot of their carpet manufacturing. And we were in a big room, and they had pulled together a lot of the pictures from my photography website, not the carpet one. I, I have a side photography website, uh, Instagram, Bill Young Photo. And they had printed some pictures out and made, from the pictures, they put them on a board. And from a lot of my photos, they kind of came up with some design ideas, which is something I, I could never do. And from there, they showed us three or four different ideas of a carpet. So we looked through them all, and we kind of picked which one we liked the best, and then from the designer computer, kind of like a a Photoshop sort of software that is for designing carpet. They worked together with us and helped pick some colors that we thought might go together. And they had these little pom-poms of color that we could put together and see how they look together. And then we entered those numbers into the software. And then next thing we know, we had a carpet design that they actually created. Bill and Sophie, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Do pick up an issue of the magazine to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from John Rutter, Liam Halligan and Pierce Torday. And as you'll have heard during the podcast, we are starting a new podcast newsletter. So if you'd like to get a curated selection of podcast highlights every Monday straight into your inbox, then go to spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to sign up. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. 
and we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.